The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360 degree sound, not just here or here, but everywhere. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving. The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360 degree sound, not just here or here, but everywhere. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving. for listening to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast, keeping you up to date with the latest in American soccer. And don't forget to subscribe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Jodorad, and for this episode, I'm doing things a little differently. I host a roundtable discussion on lower division soccer. Now, before I get to my guests and the details on the discussion, I did want to tell you to follow us on Twitter at Uncle Sam Soccer Pod. We always enjoy your feedback and comments, so continue to send those in. You can find the show on any major podcast platform. And lastly, if you haven't done so, check out our mini-series on the potential relocation of the Columbus Crew by Anthony Precourt. We look at the different perspective, whether that's from San Antonio's, Columbus, Austin's, or even nationally. So you should definitely go check it out. Today we're talking lower division soccer in America. Where is it going? What's the significance? Changes that need to be made. As we know, MLS is the top league, and a majority of soccer fans in this country have come to enjoy it. Not all, but a majority. At times, even here at Uncle Sam, we do forget about the smaller clubs in other leagues, whether that's USL, MPSL, and even former NESL clubs, but it's all U.S. soccer. It's not a perfect system. It causes severe headaches to understand the relationship and the structure of it all. From this aspect, American soccer as a whole is fractured and disorganized. My three guests have spent time in America's lower division soccer, two of them spending time in MLS. In fact, we've had them all on the show before in no particular order. My first guest is Eric Stover. He spent time at the New York Red Bulls, helped bring in French legend Thierry Henry to the league, now is the COO of the New York Cosmos. Eric, how's it going? Steven, how are you? I'm doing well. Now, Eric, we've had you on the show multiple times, and even through your comments on Twitter, you genuinely love to talk about off-the-field issues regarding U.S. soccer. Tell me, where does that passion or that drive come from? Well, um, I, I think it's the, my unique background in that I didn't grow up playing soccer and uh, sort of fallen into it and have had the opportunity to be an executive on the MLS side of things and, of, of course, with the New York Cosmos. Uh, so it's given me a unique perspective on all sides and also developed a lot of international contacts. So um, that unique perspective from having not played and had to learn the game um, from scratch and, and hearing all sides of it. I try to uh, 
share my opinions based on that experience and to, you know, further the conversation as best I can. Well, thank, you know, thanks again for joining us. My second ju- guest joining us is Nicholas Mendola. He's a contributor to NBC Sports and actually recently wrote a piece on lower division soccer. But more importantly, he's a co-owner of FC Buffalo of the NPSL. Nick, you had a very intriguing piece about lower division soccer, citing one of the most exciting clubs on and off the field in Detroit City FC. But what made you uh, write a piece like this? I would say general frustration. (laughs) Um, I, I... uh, this is going to be, I mean, next summer is going to be uh, our 10th season running an NPSL team. And, um, you know, we have people behind the scenes in Buffalo who are interested in, in growing it, but you got to find the right mix. And I can't tell you how many nascent leagues, startup leagues, uh, very good leagues, which happen to run into a problem that we've put on, we've put information on, on people's desks. And I, I think what people fail to gather is, um, while there is absolutely, and you know, I've written about this from a, from a professional unbiased standard on NBC, you know, what people fail to realize is that for every group that is successful via a supporters trust and a community trust, um, you're still going to need some backing and that backing doesn't want to back a bad idea. So, um, it's just, a it's, it's been such a challenge and I see things like, um, what's happened with the NASL, um, and what's become of, of the USL and not that I, not that either of those things, I'm not making a judgment on them here and I'm not trying to run at the mouth, but it certainly becomes a challenge to, you know, sort out what you want to do. Absolutely. My third guest is Peter Wilt. He's had quite a journey with soccer, spending a good, and may I add a successful amount of time with the Chicago fire, then jumped around with lower division clubs, helping launch five clubs before he got into the project with NISA now he is the managing director of Madison Pro Soccer, where that is his sixth club that he's helping launch. Peter, how's it going? Fantastic today. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm doing well. Now, Peter, we've had you on the show to chat about NISA, but you're no longer part of NISA. What was the key decision for leaving NISA and moving to the project in Madison? A couple things. Certainly the attraction of the Madison Project was probably uh, the biggest thing. I've lived in Wisconsin for 40 years, and uh, Wisconsin hasn't had a pro soccer team in 15 years. So uh, when I found out um, the ownership was going to move forward with the team uh, one way, with me or without me, uh, I thought uh, both personally and and professionally, I think it was uh, uh, important for me to be involved in this particular project. Uh, the ownership is great. The market is great. So it's very attractive in itself. As far as leaving NISA, you know, I gave it a good, I think, 18-month run uh, since uh, the leadership of the NASL and NPSL asked me to try to put that league together um, without getting it to the finish line, though we'd gotten it pretty close several times, but we never quite got over the line. And I, I got the, the feeling that at at some point, I was becoming an impediment, and that if I would extricate myself from the process, uh, there would be other people that could streamline the process and get it to the finish line more quickly without me, frankly. Oh, okay. Well, we're having a roundtable discussion here with Lower Division Soccer. And let's begin broad. In your guys' opinions and from your experiences, what does Lower Division Soccer mean to U.S. soccer as a whole? And Nick, as uh, co-owner, let's begin with you. 
Um, geez, that's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> I think um, <laughs> I, I think there's a there's a real challenge. We have been fortunate um, to be around uh, nine years going into our tenth season, and um, you know you've seen partners walk away, you've seen sponsors come and go. Fortunately, most of them believe in the project, but I I think the amount of helping hands out there um, has been, has been limited because it's very competitive. And as I like to say, it's still very, very much the wild, wild West. Um, You know, I'm I'm fairly blessed in this conversation. I have two organizations that have helped us along the way. Um, We've gotten some advice from some people who work at the cosmos and um, when Peter was with the Indy 11, he hosted myself and my partner at a game and actually our whole team, we brought our NPSL team to the game. And just kind of let us know. I mean, one of the most valuable pieces of advice he gave me that I've taken to our investors and it's it's probably driven us has been whatever you do, don't play in the suburbs. So we have been holding out to build something in the city, (laughs) something small in the city. But um, the amount of people who really want to help you, uh, it's a lot lower than you think. Um, So I would say that that that's a big thing. And then the other thing is, uh, and I've told you guys this off the record, is um, the leagues that exist, when you've got uh, look, I don't come from a ton. <laughs> um, the people we have backing us, I love them, and they're valuable for us. We don't want to put um, all of our eggs, all of their eggs, in one basket with something that could be gone in three months. And that's probably the scariest thing about ever moving above um, the level we're currently at. Now, uh, Eric, Nick said Wild Wild West. It, how do you see it? Is it the Wild Wild West? Yeah, I, I think there's a point there. Um, it's not structured well below MLS. Um, and I think your initial question was really U.S. soccer, so meaning folks that are holding a title with the Federation. And I think if you're outside their their vision of what it should be, then then you have opposition. I think if you're willing to capitulate to the way they think things should be run, then um, you know they're, they're more inclined to work with you. So, for example, USL partnering with MLS. Uh, I'd imagine if you talk to USL people, they'd say they have no problem with U.S. soccer. But if you have critical points that you want to discuss or want to move along or think that uh, there are changes that need to be made to help grow the sport, then um, you're on the outside looking in and you're not getting any help at all. Now, Peter, I'm going to change the question to U.S. soccer, but all lowercase. What about this, what U.S. soccer, as you know, from the fans' perspective, when we say U.S. soccer and with the national teams, all the leagues, all the, the fans behind it, what does lower division soccer mean from that aspect, obviously with your experience being around with so many different clubs? You know, it's an interesting question. The metaphor I would use is a Christmas tree. And you know, MLS is maybe the star on the top of it, but lower division soccer is the tree itself. It's a, you know, kind of the, the spine, the backbone, the infrastructure. It, it, it spreads the tentacles to every, not just every small and medium-sized city, but, you know, in, in cases like, you know, New York, Detroit, Miami, some very large cities that have their own soccer communities that aren't being serviced uh, by Major League Soccer, uh, whether 
directly or indirectly. In, in New York's case, obviously there's MLS there, but there's a, a large fan base that doesn't feel that they are relevant to them. So the Cosmos and other teams in the area um, pick up the slack or fill the gaps. And if we're truly going to be a soccer nation, we can't just be you know 20 or 30 uh, first division teams. Uh, it's a whole different argument on what the first and second division should be like. But it's spread throughout the country, and the lower division uh, markets fill an important gap from a spectator standpoint. And then obviously you have the participation standpoint and the development of players uh, is another uh, issue or another factor that lower division soccer serves. It creates environments for players, uh, thousands and thousands of players to compete and train and develop that um, the top division is missing. So it, it, lower division soccer is probably underrated and um, unrecognized overall because the shiny object of um, MLS gets all the attention, and understandably so. Now, I don't think it's wrong to suggest lower division soccer at times or is forgotten or even ignored. I mean, he, U.S. soccer is so complex and so large that even here, you know, our tiny show here has a hard time covering it all. Um but the more important question is, why do you think it is forgotten? And uh, Nick, I'll begin with you. Well, um, I, I can tell you that within year one of our team, uh, I would say this maybe year two when we started getting decent crowds, <laughs> um, one of the things we heard is, hey, this was awesome. Like, they're leaving the game. This was awesome. What do you think the odds are we can get an MLS team? You know, like, that's that's how it was because – because that's how uh, you know American soccer ha- had built itself at the time, and what's frustrating is to find people who kind of become your your tastemakers amongst your fan base, and realize that you know what they've told us is we want a longer season. And so right now, I mean, <laughs> if we're being fair, at times we're competing against you know your top Division One team in town because their season is just as long, and it it takes uh, it takes outside that zone. So. Um, I think it gets forgotten because um, there's limited media coverage. Uh, I can also tell you as someone from a national outlet, when I write about lower league stuff, for the most part, when I talk lower league, I'm talking your fourth tier and below um, or the championship in England, anything outside of a nation's top flight, we don't get clicks. Um, and, and those are very measurable things. And as you can imagine, I pay closer attention to that than most. Um, I can do an interview with, um, and, and this, I think, is becoming a marketing issue for lower division soccer. If you don't say like pro rel in in your whether you're against it or against it or for it, if you don't say pro rel with a hashtag or inside of the headline or in the, the URL feed, um, you might not get anybody reading some really salient points from people who are trying to do the right thing at the lower level. So it's hard to get attention, um, which means your market's going to be driven by lower support. And if your market makes enough noise, if Detroit City makes enough noise, Chattanooga makes enough noise, um, great. If you don't, look at what happened with Kitsap. I just saw that this morning before the issue that one of the, you know, one of our players played for Kitsap, won a PDL national championship. Nine years later, they're not going to be a team. Um, What do you do with that? All right. So, but I just want to clarify, you said you don't get clicks when you do talk about lower division soccer, and that's even if you talk about the championship uh, in England. If I can be honest, um, the clicks even with MLS are low. 
Now, granted, we have the rights to the Premier League on NBC, right. but relatively, spe- relatively speaking, um, you need to do something, which is why I always laugh when someone says, well, what's it going to do for DC to bring in Wayne Rooney? Everything. It's going to do everything. If you bring in the right big name, people still care about that. And I, I know that may not be a popular thing to say, but I would ask Eric, when they brought in Raul, how successful that was. And for me, I know it made a lot of people in our area perk up and say, is there a chance we could play the Cosmos this year? <laughs> now, Eric, you are at one of the most historic clubs in all of U.S. soccer history. It's the New York Cosmos. I mean, I, I don't think you, if you're a fan of U.S. soccer, you know the name New York Cosmos. But do you at times feel like your club gets forgotten in this discussion in, in U.S. soccer as a whole, not lowercase U.S. soccer as a whole? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it, it's hard to be relevant in in your market. It, it's a big challenge. Uh, in New York, New York is not a, a lower division minor league market. Um, for example, there aren't any major college sports in the New York metropolitan area. The closest thing you have is Rutgers football and St. John's basketball. Neither one of those register really. Um, and only if they ever do register, it's because they've caught lightning in a bottle and they're they're relevant nationally for the first time, and then people start showing up. Um, so it is a very difficult challenge um, to to be relevant. And we had the same conversation when I was at at Red Bull. Um, you know, how do we break through? How do we get more um, eyeballs to to what we were doing? And um, that's with a team that was spending two to three million dollars a year on advertising. So people would criticize our marketing efforts, whether it was at Red Bull or at Cosmos. But those two clubs have spent more on advertising, marketing, and promotion than than anybody in the United States over the last ten years on on average. I, maybe not the highest, but it's certainly up there. And um, People just need to remember what it costs to to put a billboard up in in New York City. Probably one billboard is probably uh, more expensive than the entire budget of another club in the the rest of the country. So, um, fighting for relevance is a is a big challenge, and it doesn't help when the federation is largely ignoring what you're doing, and in fact setting things up to to not support you. For example, like the Open Cup for MLS, which is the driver of of attention in a lot of ways for the Open Cup, for them to come in in the fifth round, sixth round, whatever it is, and almost all of the great stories of upsets are are over. Um, you know, it's just foolish. They should be using a big club like DC United to go play. Um, you know, someone else in their market and you play on the road and mm-hmm. and draw attention for that club and help them raise revenue just as the, the, the cups are done in the rest of the world. Mm. Peter, how have you managed to fight for relevancy? I think Eric's got some great points. It's, it's There's so much clutter, uh, not just within American soccer, but obviously other American sports were fighting against, and also international soccer. Uh, so there is a ton of clutter. Uh, to your question, we've always fought it from the bottom up, grassroots. Um, a, it's less expensive. Uh, B, in this era of social media, 
it's uh, much less expensive than, as Eric says, putting up a billboard in New York uh, to have an aggressive um, social media campaign. Uh, and also, you know, physically getting out there and talking to people, not just in the soccer communities, which is kind of the low-hanging fruit, but in other areas of a community and in developing relationships and giving them a sense of ownership, whether it's social, cultural, civic, charitable, um, business organizations, and making them feel part of the team and also appealing to civic pride. If you can manage to get the team to be identified with the community as a true representative of whatever market you're playing in, it will broaden the support you'll get, um, not just from soccer fans, but essentially from fans of the city. People who, who I mean, that's what we're trying to do in Madison is trying to develop those connections so that the identity of the team is part and parcel of the identity of the city. It's tribal, right? I mean, that's why the sport is so passionate. Fans are so passionate around the world because they feel when a team from the other city beats them, that they're beating their city, their community themselves. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sport version of war. So if you can get people to care about your team in that manner, uh, you know, in Wisconsin where I am now, you know, the Green Bay Packers are probably the essence of that concept. If you can manage to get that connection and get people to care about your team, you don't need to spend the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars to cut through the clutter. Uh, you can uh, interact with them uh, directly. And instead of selling people tickets, uh, ideally they'll be buying tickets because they want to. Well, you you hit a very interesting point there in that, I guess, that tribal part of sports. You see it in the other major leagues, whether it's baseball, football, uh, and it's something my co-host has hit on, and it's MLS's attempt of making these rivalries, and some of them have grown naturally. Some of them are forced, particularly the forced ones. are They're not real rivalries. Eric, let me ask you with the New York Cosmos, do you have – that fan base where it is, you know, they bleed the New York Cosmos colors. Uh, yeah, but um, that the interesting thing was that 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 concept was real five six years ago. We had pretty good following, in um, you know, it was sort of like death by a thousand cuts. We it just got a little worse every year. Over the last five years, of course, this being the most difficult year with only our reserve team playing. Um, and trying to capture that tribal nature, we, we put a lot of effort into doing that. You know, we sent players to, to practices on the youth level. And what we saw in, in so many other things, that I don't need to bore your audience with all those those details, but... What we saw is people would turn up, and uh, maybe not as much as we would like, but they were coming to a couple games a year. Um, and to tie this all into Nick's point, uh, what we heard constantly was, "When are you going to MLS? This is great. Um, I love this game. This is this is so much fun. I like the way you guys play." Um, but they almost always ended the conversation with, "When are you going to MLS?" And I think that disconnect, particularly in a market like New York, uh, weighed on us over time. 
um, and not being part of promotion or relegation and having a clear path forward um, and being part of a, a system in a league that was viewed as, as an outsider in some ways. Um, and it, it just, without a clear answer, some, something for people to understand, it just got a little worse every year. And they, they wandered away slowly uh, day after day. Nick, what's it like with in Buffalo where there is no MLS team and the closest MLS team is hundreds of miles away? Well, actually, you have Toronto. Well, Never you, mind. Say, Sorry. I, I forgot. Sure. <laughs> you have Toronto there, but that's in Canada. Well, I think you guys are dealing with um, uh, an, interesting, an interesting set of points there because Toronto, I was a season ticket holder for Toronto FC because it was the closest soccer to me. Uh, before it all went down. I mean, we had the Rochester Rhinos as well. Don't mm. get me wrong, but it was the closest MLS team. And at the time, um, you know, we went to Rhinos games as well. But um, for me, the challenge is something that I'll pick up on from Eric's point. Um, you're not just competing against uh, soccer teams. You're competing against um, a pro market. And Buffalo, for which is surprising to people, I think people look at Buffalo and think of it size-wise and maybe don't suspect that like, we've got four Division One teams within 45 minutes, and a lot of them have been awfully good in their respective sports, but they're all fighting against the Bills and the Sabres. Um, so there's an, and maybe this is a largely thing, large thing for an American sports fan, is maybe we choose to go towards the familiar more often than not. Um, it, it feels like a safer bet for us. It's, it's going to a chain restaurant instead of ordering local. So you've got to great point by Peter, right? Like we, we worked, um, we sent our players and, and myself as well. Um, we go to things like world refugee day and, and pitch in our time, not just, and I'll be honest with you. Yes, we love doing it. We love meeting people, but because those people, um, that we've met at places like that bleed soccer. And we can also go to a suburban, um, gigantic youth club and pitching at their youth day, at their festival or whatever, and you meet kids who at that time are bleeding soccer. And it's it's a, a mixture of the low-hanging fruit and maybe the fruit that you're not even looking for that is out there, right? I always think about this. Um, and this is a little bit of an aside, and I apologize to Peter, Eric, and yourself, Stephen. But I always think about the first people in this world, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, trying to figure out what's poisonous and what's not. And, hey, we better not eat that because Pete died. So, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, there's a lot of that with marketing as well. Like, where are you putting your dollars and who are you trying to get? And can I get a diehard Buffalo Bills fan who's a little interested in soccer? Is my time worth trying to convince that guy or is my time worth trying to convince a 13 year old and his whole family that there's a future for them in soccer and it's it is a challenge so you hit a the marketing aspect the future of the sport i mean obviously peter and eric spending time in mls but is it catered more towards the younger audience or where where's that market with soccer fans in this country and uh peter i'll give this one to you uh it's not any one market. I think there's, you know, maybe right. four or five demographics we need to hit. Uh, the youth uh, are are always going to be critical. As, you know, as long as they're playing the sport in large numbers, they're a target audience, and we need to include them. Um, for me, developing the identity or the brand of the team that we're trying to make as relevant overall in the community or as attractive as we can in the community, I think young adults are the key to that. They may not end up being the majority of your audience 
or buy the most expensive tickets, but they're going to uh, essentially label your team as cool, or if they don't go, not cool. And they'll also create the environment inside the stadium with their their singing and chants and and flags and smoke bombs. Uh, so that audience is, to me, the most important because it has a knock-on effect positively with other demographics. And I think it's important to note that that young adult audience is almost bifurcated into uh, younger millennials up to 26 or 27 and the older millennials up to maybe 38. The younger ones are going to be more active and rowdy and fun and probably come to the games uh, really in a social um setting that the older ones are maybe a drinking craft beers coming with their their wife or girlfriend or maybe their buddy uh but uh, buying maybe the more expensive seats uh but they know soccer both those groups they know the sport um it's they have to respect it in order to justify spending not only their money but their time uh to coming uh and then new americans uh depending on the market, uh, more or less, but it's an important. Immigrants are first and second generation are important um, uh, for sure. And then that other demographic I talked about earlier, civic pride people. And these are people that may not even be sports fans, but they see soccer is not a traditional sport. And while the other, the traditional sports, they might be too cool for, or too nerdy for, frankly, um, soccer uh, fits with them maybe because it's an international sport or it's seen as a bit uh, edgier or, or cooler. Uh, and uh, those are all important audiences. Um, you know, to, to markets, we as a sport have not succeeded either from a participation or spectatorship standpoint in large numbers are inner city African-Americans and uh, rural and small town America. Um, that to me is the final frontier of where we net, need to get to to be a true soccer nation and uh, i don't have the answers for it but you, know, you asked about who the targets are right. and uh, those are the two we're missing i, I, I think uh, i think if i could interrupt sorry steve no go uh, ahead peter is peter is perfectly spot on with all that and i i think you could see examples across the country um in any any division where uh, it's working really well. So you've got Seattle, Portland, Atlanta. Uh, Sporting Kansas City is a good example of have been, having been completely uncool thing to do and now is a cool thing to do in, in Kansas City. And then you have places like Detroit and, and Chattanooga. They're, those brands, those clubs, they've been driven by it being a cool thing to do and that key demographic showing up every day and bringing that atmosphere. Uh, you know, I've lived through two different uh, cycles that that reinforced that message for me. When I when I took over at Red Bull, um, it was pretty low. That that cool factor was about as low as you can get. Um, and then as we moved into the new stadium, um, the supporter groups just doubled, tripled in size. And um, while Red Bull still struggles with consistent attendance. Um, the ESC Viking Army, those those groups that support Red Bull are pretty consistent, and they they bring the noise and they bring the atmosphere. And then with the Cosmos, we kind of started high. Um, our first game we played against um, the Strikers, we had a thousand supporters behind the goal, and it was packed, and the atmosphere was wonderful. And then there 
there were things over the years that slowly eroded that away. A lot of a lot of guys and gals jumped for NYCFC, um, and then the you know just what I said before about the the slow erosion of of confidence in what we were trying to do it led it to you know just being a handful of diehards now. I did want to move the conversation here to the role of the federation with lower division soccer, and what particular is the current role? Nick, I'll, I'll begin with you. <laughs> I'm laughing because I think both Peter and Eric may have been the better place to start, but I'll so I'll keep it short and sweet. Um, look, I think the federation has has two big duties. Um, one remains the same as it has been for the last. Uh, 25 years and beyond and it's making sure uh, and it's making dead sure that a club like ours or a club like uh, Cleveland SC or a club like the the recently failed Kitsap Pumas that that they have every chance to succeed that they have every chance to exist uh, and that means making lower division soccer accessible to a lot of markets because I'll tell you what our budget um, we've been able to spend more money on marketing since our league added teams in Rochester and Syracuse um, to allow our travel budget to go down. Mm. But then, I, th- you know, I think their other duty, um, and, and whether we see this or not, um, I put a lot of it on the leadership of Carlos Cordero is to pay some attention to it. Um, the U.S. Open Cup is an amazing tournament, and Eric mm-hmm. brought this up earlier. But I love it. I think, as someone in the media, if there's one thing that anybody in soccer would love to prop up, it's more games like when um, I can't believe I'm forgetting their name, the convenience stores, Christos, <laughs> when yes. Christos played uh, DC United, right? That was the oh, example man, we... I was trying to bring up too, and they escaped me too. I'm ge- I guess we're both yeah. getting too old. <laughs> exactly <laughs> but we want more of that i think i think the soccer wants more of that when you find out that appalachian state going back to football has it close with michigan late even though it's d uh d1 double at the time against d1 you tune into that and you skip away from sorry sorry peter purdue wisconsin even though it's a conference game um we want storylines and we don't get a lot of storylines given the parody and this is where I get back to the close thing, and, and I'm going to leave a juicy softball out there for both of you guys. I think it's insane for anybody that buys that MLS has a limit on the amount of teams it's going to have. Like, oh, we're going to stop at 28. No, you're not. Like, this is a giant country. And if you stop at that, you're not a good business. <laughs> well, uh, Peter, I'll, give it, I'll, I'll hand it off to you. I don't know. How would you respond or what would you add to, to what Nick said? Yeah, I think you know U.S. Soccer has a big opportunity with the new leadership uh, to. Uh, it sounds coarse, but to put up or shut up. You know, Carlos Cordero's platform, if you read it, I think um, makes a lot of sense and would make a lot of people in the change movement that Eric Winalda and some others led. Um, if he comes through on that platform, I think lower division soccer will benefit from it, as will all of the sport throughout the country. Um, and to his credit, I wrote an article in The Athletic a, a month or two ago analyzing his first three months. He actually made some quick changes in a positive direction uh, in terms of the structure of U.S. soccer, things he could control with the stroke of a pen. But the majority of his platform and the majority of the changes that need to be affected to benefit lower division soccer and, um, well, frankly, all of U.S. soccer uh, requires 
significant funding. And his talk, you know, you know, talk is cheap. And he did put the talk out there. His, go back and check his platform. It's online. And I think it uh, was very good. Now, now he's going to have to uh, put up. And he can't use the lack of funds as an excuse for two reasons. One, U.S. soccer is sitting on a huge, call it a rainy day fund, that he can access. And with the United 2026 bid being successful, mm. you're now assured that future revenues will flow into the Federation in unprecedented amounts. And he can uh, utilize that to grow the sport on the women's side, the men's side, the lower division side, youth, adult, amateur, uh, officials. He has the resources. And I think it's incumbent upon the entire soccer community to somewhat hold his feet to the fire and have him come through with those promises. Uh, Eric, I, what about the $500 million that Rocco Comiscio has dangled in front of U.S. soccer do you think it's a realistic option for U.S. soccer to attack? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it was a legit offer. I think Rocco's a very smart man, and he self-made. He's a billionaire, and he came from nothing. So he he to uh, to be able to be in this position in his life and want to give back is very admirable. It's not a PR stunt. And I think what he did was he looked at, if I'm going to continue with the Cosmos, I'm going to lose money. Uh, I'm going to lose a lot of it, um, but five years down the road, ten years down the road, I want it to not be completely wasted. I want there to be a better system ten years down the road. And what we've seen from the last five years of the NASL is it was just a waste of money. Um, and at the end of the day, it was because U.S. soccer and MLS um, are too intertwined in their business operations. So what I think Rocco wants to do is to set a runway that um, that a second division, third division, whatever division it is, is irrelevant. Is that a, at the end of that runway, um, there's been no interference in that you've established a, a good business model that's sustainable. Um, and I, I've seen a lot of articles and posts, people saying, why can't this group of 20 or 30 teams that are out there that are part of NISA or um, NPSL Pro or this independent market, why can't they just get together um, and, and form a league? The problem is they have the exact same set of questions that Rocco does. What, what is this going to look like in five or ten years? Am I still just pouring money into it? Um, and there's no revenue streams for me to, to back it up. And, you know, this goes into Nick's point earlier. Am I better off playing amateur soccer for, for three months out of the year, um, even though I have ambi ambitions to do things greater? Um, and so I know Carlos has an opportunity here, but, um, you know, after six months, we haven't really seen anything to uh, address these these issues that are out there. I tweeted something the other day. I, I didn't make any comment about it. I just said, just as a reminder, look at what's going on. And I, I think I posted 11 different lawsuits or um, corruption claims or something, some kind of complaint. 
Uh, and I'm not validating those complaints. I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm not saying uh, U.S. soccer is wrong or U.S. soccer is right. I'm just saying all of this is going on and none of it's being addressed. It's all being left to courts. Um, and I, if, if it were me, if I was Carlos Cordero, I'd be trying to resolve these issues. And as Peter said, there's a war chest sitting there um, that could help resolve these issues. And it's really, at the end of the day, almost all of them are about good governance and fairness. Um, and I would hope that he would get started on some of these issues and, and open up the dialogue and... Uh, get investment in soccer that's stable and not just keep marginalizing it. Do you have anything to add, Nick? What um, what they said? Yeah, some terrific points, and uh, apologize for having a poor sense of humor. But uh, <laughs> look, I I think um, I think there's a lot of reason to have hope. Uh, there's a lot of reason to have hope, and there's a lot of, of reason to be afraid and. and Maybe I didn't make my, my point well enough earlier, but almost exactly what Eric said. I'm telling you, and I think people get tired of hearing it because it becomes a put-up-or-shut-up thing. If the right idea was out there that made sense to um, to investors that could feel like, you know what, five years, ten years down the line, I know my team can exist in this league, I think they make it every time. But right now, I mean, look, even these subplots – to the to the idea of making these lawsuits go away or at least make action if you're a really successful businessman and you're looking at it you have to love soccer to fly in the face of that um, because you're thinking i'm getting in bed with an organization that for better or worse um and i i mean this not just u.s soccer i mean leagues i mean teams uh but that for better or for worse are going to to put me at risk so the idea is um let's find some more billionaires who really love soccer <laughs> Right. And let, let's reverse engineer this for a second. So um, it's pretty well established. There's been enough teams that have folded over the last five, ten years to, to know that these teams aren't making money. So you're asking an owner to, to lose money on their business, whether it's $100,000 or a million or, or $10 million, They're losing money, and it depends on the owner and what he or she's willing to lose before they finally say, I've had enough. When you, mm -hmm. when you talk about starting new leagues, again, let's reverse engineer it. They're already losing money, but now they have to find a, a, a league front office too. Um, mm -hmm. And what does that cost? You can't do it with two or three people, and I think Peter would agree that one of the problems we had with the NASL is the front office wasn't funded well enough and there weren't enough people and we weren't we were getting outworked um, by the 45 people that were running the USL um, so do the math backwards you need probably a million five two million just to get started per year on the league office and if you have 10 teams what's that what's that math or 12 teams and then you add that on to what the team is likely already losing um, because they've gone from amateur level where they haven't had to pay for players to now having to have a $300,000, player, $400,000 player budget. So now you're, you're, you're starting to lose a lot of money, and it, it's not sustainable. And when you're in a market where there's 
absolutely zero transfer fees. There are no solidarity payments. There's no training compensation. You're not getting money for TV. You're simply living on ticket sales. It's a big, big risk. So I get the sense that the biggest issue facing lower division soccer is, for a lack of a better term, financial backing. No, I I would disagree with that. I think um, there are plenty of investors, as we've seen over the last decade, that are stepping up. Uh, The amount of net worth needed to operate a first division club is um, significant, obviously. For a second division, less significant. For a third division club, even less. Um, There's obviously a risk-reward involved in that. Uh, But what we're finding now that we didn't have 20 years ago is that the population that has the high net worth is coming from a soccer generation. Uh, We always think in terms of, boy, when this generation grows up, they're going to be buying season, they're going to be buying season tickets. And um, maybe even the media uh, is going to be better because decisions by newspaper editors and television uh, producers are, are, are going to come from the soccer generation. But the same concept holds true with ownership. And now we have high net worth people in their 30s and 40s uh, that grew up in the soccer generation. They care about the sport. They get it. They understand it. They're willing to invest uh, some of their uh, accumulated wealth into professional soccer. So I think that's much less an issue now than it has been in my, my entire lifetime. In response to Peter, if it's not the financial backing per se being the number one issue facing lower division, then what is? What is what is holding it back? Wow. Um, I'll jump in. I, I, I think financial backing isn't so much as it's um, more financial. I hate using a term like certainty because certainly in sports it's not certain. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but more stability in terms of we're all still nascent clubs. And I think that's a big point. I mean, unless you're the Cosmos or a lot of these uh, MLS teams and some USL teams, um, you know, certainly fit this bill as well. But um, I I hate the fact I hate, I'm very proud of the fact that FC Buffalo is about to enter our 10th season. Uh, I'm also cognizant of the fact that it's our 10th season. That's not a big number. And how many teams fail before they get there? And if I can tell you the sacrifices we've made, um, for it to be alive, and this is where I credit our fans. Um, I think the the biggest issue is is creating fans who aren't downtrodden um, when things don't go at the pace they want it to go, or finding the meteoric rise. Because uh, you know, growing up, for example, big Sabres fan, big Bills fan, also really liked the Bisons until I realized that uh, the idea of someone being on the now it's a different structure. Of course, people get called up to the big leagues or sent down to Double A. But, you know, watching Tom Prince, who became like a major league bullpen catcher, he's my favorite player, never see, you know, he's only going to be on the Bisons for two, three years. And, and that's that's also a challenge. So um, creating a culture that rises above that um, is, is maybe what I wanted to boil down to those fans who care. We have we are alive and there is no question about this. We are alive because when we have down moments, the 100, 200 people who live and breathe our club pick us up. And whether that be on social media when we're having a bad day, right, or you're out at a you're out at a bar after a loss, and and you got people there saying we lost a game this year to our rivals, a game that if we won we would have likely made the playoffs. We lost badly. Um, 
there are reasons for it, but we don't have to get into it because they're excuses. And we got to, I, I gen, general, genuinely, sorry, get to our supporters bar after, and I'm about to order a beer. And I see one of our fans, he's 22 years old. He gives me a high five. And I said, I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm like, I'm sorry. We didn't have it today. And I don't know what happened. He said, look, man, we'll sort it out. And I'll see you in Binghamton next week. So he's going to drive three hours to watch us play a team with a negative 60 goal differential. Um, that means, that means a lot to me and, and it will never not excuse the double negative. It'll never not mean a lot to me. So I think the biggest challenge is cultivating that fan base. That's going to keep you alive long-term. Now, I, I, a personal story I, I, I want to add to this is I have a cousin's, I have a cousin boyfriend in Switzerland who's, Club, whose favorite club I think is FC Thun in the Alps, and they they struggle financially. So the he buys tickets, he goes to the game. But in recent years, they'll send out an email going like, "Hey, we we need some financial support," and he writes a check for hundred Swiss francs or whatever it may be, mails it to the club that helps his support. And I think culturally speaking, I think that's still what lacks even in MLS, the top division, is that real sense of fandom and you know this is my club and i bleed these colors and i I think across american sports i i get that sense that that doesn't really stick all that much think about how many new lebron james fans there are and he's played with three different clubs sure i mean having that you know that that local fan connection is, is huge you know how they participate in the funding of the team can take a lot of different shapes, whether it's season tickets or corporate support or or just writing a check. I'd like to see more um, uh, true ownership, you know, fan ownership of, of clubs. And with uh, new legislation and caused by the Jobs Act uh, implementation, it's now possible. And you're seeing, I think there's something like 10 amateur teams in the United States, soccer teams, that are fan-owned nowadays. And I, it will not be long before professional teams get at least partial fan ownership. Uh, the U.S. soccer standards prevent uh, full or majority fan ownership at this point. Uh, but just to have even 10% representation ownership by supporters, by fans, will engage the community with the team even further. And I think that's going to be a, a huge uh, step uh, in the connecting of the sport with the public in the United States. And, and it's a little bit along the lines of the example you were giving uh, with your Swiss friend. Yeah. So um, next question is, I think, the question that a lot of people were expecting for me to launch the the conversation is, and it's about promotion relegation. Now, Nick, you wrote... Quote, and if we keep making the mistake of letting these conversations regress to simple pro-rail banter, we're all going to lose. <laughs> I'm going to begin with you. Promotion relegation, what would it mean for you know FC Buffalo if there was a system implemented, not even in two years, but even in the next decade or even two decades, something, you know, where, where there's an yeah. actual plan in, in, in place to say this is the goal of U.S. soccer is to have an actual pyramid. No, first things first, I want to make that, that point. I want to, I want to expand on it because I believe in what I'm saying, um, but I believe in pro- promotion relegation way more. I think we need promotion relegation. What I'm saying with the point is if every time we argue about lower division soccer, we boil it down to the only thing that's going to 
um, that's going to work for it is ProRel. And I'm talking more about three to five Twitter accounts that that's the only <laughs> thing they, they tweet about. Yeah. And I mean, that's an issue. So I hope <laughs> uh, I want Peter and Eric and everybody listening to know that I, I believe in promotion relegation and I, and I want it to happen. Uh, I think eventually over time it is going to happen. I understand why there's resistance to it. Um, but at the same time, um, no, I do think it's very, very, very important. And uh, Peter and Eric certainly have a, a much more keen and I'm sure interesting and relevant insight into it, so I'll leave the rest to them. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Twitter's going to be interesting after this, I think. Um, yeah, I would say that what what we should be looking at is how do we – how do we open up the markets in a in a way that helps minimize risk and, and gives communities opportunities um, in belief? And to Nick's point, it's not just promotion relegation. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think it, we may have talked about this on another show, Stephen. Um, but for me, the biggest issue is that we don't pay transfer fees, have solidarity payments, or training compensation. That's critical revenue for smaller markets, and then you know the knock-on effect of developing players is, is fairly obvious. Um, but one thing I think that gets understated is the the marketing platform that promotion and relegation could deliver. The metrics around soccer in this country are, are not great. Television ratings for MLS are pretty poor, especially when you're you're analyzing how. MLS can can stop with expansion and, and focus on TV um, because there's TV money coming in. Um, so those things are hard to square. And if if you took the unique selling proposition of the only sport in American in the American landscape that has something like promotion relegation and how it could involve every community in the country, um, then then. I think there's a real business discussion to have. You know, how does this help MLS? Because people are now watching TV more, um, and their rights are worth a lot more. And then, how does it help lower division soccer? I don't think that conversation's happening nearly enough. Um, and I do think that if we found a way to do it, it would mean an awful lot to the sport, and it, we'd start capturing the 90% of soccer fans that are watching only. Liga MX, Champions League, mm-hmm. the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Peter, give you a chance. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think Nick and Eric have good points, and I'd just like to add that um, I'd like to see it from a personal standpoint, almost as a, 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 a an experiment, a chemistry experiment, mm-hmm. a test tube, to see what would happen with the marketplace if it's opened up a bit, um, and uh, hopefully, you know, someday. Uh, We'll get to see it. No, absolutely. I I think to to piggyback off of what Nick wrote, I think the banter promotion relegation is fun, but it's very short lived. Either you're for it or you're for against it, and then most people will say, "Well, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes many years to plan." But that's it. And you know, the, those people on Twitter that constantly are talking about promotion relegation, I think, do a huge disservice to the lower division clubs because there's a lot more behind it. Obviously, we just spent the last. 50 minutes in promotion relegation was not whatsoever the central part of any of that uh, of the conversation um, Nick I'm going to ask you what is the future hold for FC Buffalo listeners go follow Nick 
on Twitter at Nicholas Mendola. He has always got great pieces on NBC Sports. But Nick, 30 seconds here, future with uh, FC Buffalo. Sure. No, thanks for thanks for allowing me to talk about it. Um, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot really that we have to keep confidential, but it's um, it's about approaching a longer season uh, and it's about uh, approaching a new level. And also at this point, I think um, it's about attaching ourselves to uh, we're, we're, we're going to lean heavy, I think, on the civic pride angle that that Peter talked about. Um, there are a lot of expats. There's a lot of people moving home. Buffalo is consistently ranked in the places to move to right now. Our home values here are amazing. And I think, um, listen, we're still here in Buffalo. We haven't moved. You know, I've had chances to move via journalism. Um, and, and I think really for us, it's about finding, and maybe we have, <laughs> finding that next gear, that next uh, league, that next setup. But it's also about making the people in Buffalo and getting back to our roots and talking a little bit less about, um, you know, expansion and talking a little bit more about how happy we are to be here and alive. Now, uh, follow Peter on Twitter at PeterWilt1. Peter, what's I got more of a, you know, this is more of a personal question, but what's the vision with Madison? How excited can I be once I get back to school there? yeah, it's interesting. The vision for Madison is actually more than just Madison Pro Soccer. Um, you know, from a micro standpoint, it's to build a community uh, with the city and the surrounding area to support uh, professional soccer. Uh, but the vision for the business is to grow spectator soccer throughout the state. Uh, the ownership of the club also owns four summer college baseball teams in Madison, Kenosha, Wisconsin Rapids, and Green Bay, Wisconsin. And they share a similar vision for soccer and to have multiple spectator uh, soccer teams throughout the state of Wisconsin. I'm heading up that initiative, and um, I really look forward to growing it uh, throughout the state over the next several years. And uh, follow Eric at Eric Stover. NYC, Eric. I'm sure the question is now predictable, but you know, what's the future hold for the New York Cosmos? Well, the immediate future is we have a big playoff game tomorrow. We're playing FC Motown, um, and I think it's a interesting moment in American soccer. You've got two teams combined. I think we're 19 wins, one loss, with like 65 combined goal differential. Um, not that that's a great thing for the NPSL, but the two teams are loaded with players that should be playing in MLS or in second division soccer. With uh, Motown, you've got Dilly Duca, Julius James, and others. Uh, with us, Danny Satella, Rafa Garcia, a great uh, young and up-and-coming player, and Zaire Bartley has scored four goals in, in three games. Uh, he's only 20 years old. So... You know that's a that's the big thing on in the immediate future for us, and then long term, Rocco has said the team will be back next year. What that means exactly, we're not sure because there are a lot of conversations going on, whether it's NPSL or, or something else. It'll be an interesting off season, and then for me, one thing I want to do is um, I hope a lot of folks are listening to this. We have a lot of good players on this NPSL team players whose careers are going to be in jeopardy once the season ends. Um, if they don't get picked up by a USL team or an MLS team, 
they'll they'll be facing five or six months without a team before they can sign again, and that's not a good position to be in for any of these guys. And I would say our starting 11, our first 14 players or so, field players, could definitely play USL or higher. Um, so we're going to spend a lot of time trying to help these guys find contracts elsewhere uh, so they can keep their career going. Well, awesome. Well, I appreciate it, guys. I really do, and uh, I guess best of luck with all your future soccer endeavors. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much, Stephen. So there you have it. Roundtable discussion on lower division soccer. Send in your thoughts, your comments, your concerns, questions about it. Maybe we should host another one. Who do you want to see come on the show? Tweet at Pod. We'll be back in about a week's time with the regular show. Jake and Armand will be back. They have not been sacked. Till next time, take care. From regular expenses to occasional splurges, there's a lot to buy. Why not get cash back every time you spend? With the PenFed Power Cash Rewards Card, you get cash back on every purchase. That's everywhere, every time you use it. You can even earn a $100 statement credit when you spend $1,500 in the first 90 days. Visit PenFed.org slash PowerCash to apply. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. The available AKG 36-speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360-degree sound. Not just here or here, but everywhere. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving.